Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Here we uh, shift in uh, 1 Kings chapter 14 now uh, to verse 21. And uh, we shift from the reign of Jeroboam up in the north, the northern kingdom. Uh, He dies and, and what you see is the focus that we're not going through this chronologically. Um, it's, it makes it a little bit of a, a difficult when we get to a king that reigns a long time. Um, you know, Rehoboam, Jeroboam reign similar amounts of time, so there's not a huge amount of, of difference. But we get to kings that reign the same period of uh, kings that might, six kings in the northern kingdom and one in the south. So that makes it a little bit difficult when we start talking about different kings at different periods, but hopefully we'll try and keep up with that. But here we now shift down to the, the southern part, the southern kingdom of, of Judah, um, the, the son of Solomon. Uh, so last time we uh, met um, Rehoboam was in First uh, Kings chapter 12. So all these other expeditions we've, we spent on Jeroboam in the northern kingdom. But last time we heard about Judah was that uh, here this prophet comes to him, uh, Shemaiah, and he says, Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up and fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord, and went home again according to the word of the Lord. So the last time that we'd met the, northern, the southern kingdom of um, Judah, they had been approached and told... Uh, what was going to ha- what happened with Jeroboam was from the Lord that they weren't to go and fight uh, their brothers, uh, the rest of the people, but uh, against their relatives. And so they heeded the word. They packed up their uh, shields and their their spears and their swords, and they went home. And we uh, told particularly that they went and did so because of the word of the Lord that had come to them. So now we, as we shift back to Rehoboam, we've we've seen a positive light of Rehoboam listening to the word of the Lord. But we've also seen that negative aspect of here the people coming to him and asking for him to lighten their load. And he uh, takes the foolish approach and says, well, my, my father put a heavy burden on you. Well, I'm going to put a heavier burden. Instead of whips, I'm going to send scorpions to sting you. Um, so now we get to see a little bit of a reign of Sol- uh, Solomon's son of Rehoboam. Now, there's some kings we get a large and, and, and detailed uh, exposition of, of what is happening in their lives. Other times it's more short. Um, but really what you actually find is often that we highlight the bad kings and then we also get to be able to highlight some of the good kings. Uh, but here we see in verse 21 that Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonite. So uh, this is the, the standard refrain that happens at the beginning of someone's reign to be able to bracket it out. We get to be able to find out their name, who they're the son of. Most of the time uh, we, we find that out. Uh, where they're reigning, again, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. We find out, uh, nor, normally in the, nor, the southern kingdom, we find out more information um, than we do in the northern kingdom. Uh, and in the southern kingdom, we find out generally their age, how old they were when they reign, uh, began to reign, how long they reigned, and then um, 
and also their, uh, sometimes their mother's name. That's uh, a little bit sporadic out of all the kings that we see, but we still be able to find out that thing. So here, this uh, introduction reminds us of where he is reigning, particularly he reigns in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is where God has promised to be able to put his name there. Uh, this will be important as we get in later. But here, uh, Nama the Ammonite, um, we, we might ask the question, why is this mentioned? I think in this particular instance, it connects two dots for us. Um, that is one to Solomon, and then also then how these practices that come underneath Rehoboam entered in. Uh, the reminder of uh, God's promise when God spoke to Solomon and warned him and, uh, and told him that here Solomon loved many women, not only of Pharaoh, but also in Ammonite women. And uh, specifically from these groups and categories of nations, which the Lord had told them, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. So here's the warning given uh, in the law underneath Moses as they're entering in in Deuteronomy and warnings like this that we're not to to be able to marry these nations. Why? Because they're going to turn your heart away. So we might highlight here that here uh, Nama is the Ammonite, but I think the connection is not merely that Nama is an Ammonite, but also the son of Solomon. So you see Solomon turns his heart away to other gods, worshiping other gods. And you see, this is what continues in 1 Kings chapter 11, and his wives turned away his heart, one of them, Nama the Ammonite. And Solomon and his old wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And then we also see that Solomon went after all these other foreign gods, particularly in verse 5, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And then down in verse 7, And Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, an abomination of Moab, and for Melech, the abomination of the Ammonites. So we see this connection here is not merely just with Nama, the Ammonite, but it's also with Solomon as well. And I think this is the connection here, what we're seeing is these, these two dots of the, the pattern that is instilled in this child, Rehoboam, that here his father and his mother uh, went and worshipped, and uh, here Solomon builds these, these high places. So what you see is the king turns his heart to these other gods, and then this has an effect on his children then has an effect, particularly in in Judah's case, with the the nation of Judah. And so we see that effect here underneath Rehoboam's reign in verses 22 to 24. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and that provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they they committed, more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars, and Ashtorim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations of the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So here we see this spiral of depravity that is happening within the nation of Judah. We see uh, Jeroboam in the northern kingdom, he establishes these false religions. 
But here Rehoboam uh, almost carries on these folk, fo false practices that were established by his father Solomon. But what we see is this spiral, it gets worse underneath Rehoboam. But let's start with uh, verse 22. So we see here that Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, interestingly, it doesn't say what uh, Rehoboam did was evil in sight of the Lord. Now, I, I don't have any other comment. than It's just that that's the words that are used. So here the focus is not so much on just the king as sometimes it is. But here the focus is on Judah as well as a nation. That we're seeing the spiral from Solomon to Rehoboam to now the whole nation did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and then provoked him uh, to jealousy. So we need to understand here that this evil is done not according to what they think is good and evil, what is right in their own eyes, not according to what other nations think is right or uh, in their other eyes, but it is evil in the sight of the Lord. That evil is not defined by society, by man, evil is defined by God. That's exactly what John says sin is. Anyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, that's not meaning that it's merely just breaking any form of uh, civil code, the laws that are given in the land. Law prescribed by God, moral law is required by man, and this is what evil is. That we're going to see many different things and we're going to understand and we might have sympathetic uh, feelings for what happens in some of these cases. Often they're heinous and we, we are, feel abhorred by it. But other times we'll think, well, that's not too bad. But what we're doing is actually we're doing what everyone else does, and particularly in the book of Judges, is you see this spiral unending that sin gets worse and worse because sin is based on what we think is right, not what God thinks is right. But all of these things, this evil that they do, we'll get into the details later of what they do, all of this evil provokes God to jealousy. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time understanding what this concept is. What does it mean that God is provoked to jealousy? What does it mean for God to be a jealous God for his people? Now normally words might give us some form of ickiness feeling. That there's a certain yuckiness to a word that we hear it and we either go, well, that's a good word or a bad word based on context that we feel or uh, understand. A word has positive vibes or negative vibes. There's words that you can use to be able to describe things and words that you can't use to be able to describe things. Or if you did, you'd get in a lot of trouble. And so there's... And the word can mean the same thing, but used differently. There's this factor that we take into consideration. Uh, there's things that we might say are, are good traits, and then there's things that we would say are bad traits. I mean, if you go to someone's baby, and, and the baby is a little bit of a larger baby, you might say that that baby is healthy, or built strong, or big bone, solid. But there comes a point where you, you can't use words that you would use to describe other things of this person's baby. You, they might mean the same thing. You might be describing using a similar adjective, but it then becomes in the line of offensive. And so when we think about all these things, it be, this word becomes inappropriate. And generally, when we think about jealousy, we have this negative, yucky feeling about what this word is. It's a bad thing to be jealous. Now, 
I believe that jealousy, when we're speaking of it, jealousy often is, is how we would describe maybe something like covetousness. Now, there's a little bit of a difference between the two. But jealousy often thinks that there's something you have that I want. There's something that you have, whether that's fame, fortune, whatever, that there's something I want. Appreciation, love, status. So my jealous, it's the emotional feelings that I have. Now, I think jealousy is a little bit different from covetedness. Jealousy is, I think, more focused on the emotional aspect of that feeling. Covetedness is more focused not on the emotional side, but the physical, physical seeking of that desire, that tangible response. So when we often think about jealousy, jealousy is, is often that, that sin of discontentment, that sin of, of wanting something more getting something that others have. Now, what does it mean then when we say that God is a jealous God? Now, we need to understand that just because we feel a certain way in a certain attribute or a certain feeling towards a certain thing doesn't mean that that's the correct way to do things. Humans are riddled with sin. It permeates our whole bodies, our emotions, our, our feelings, our affections, desires, actions, thoughts, sin permeates all of that. So anything that we do has elements of sin within it. Now we need to understand that God is not like that. He has no sin from within him. That we might have an emotional action or response such as anger. And that anger often will be fueled by sin or stem from sin. You know, you can get angry. I can get angry at our children, and I can justify myself, and there might be a, a, a justifiable occasion, in a sense, of that they disobeyed. Well, I could get angry and say, well, they're the ones that are sinning. But that doesn't mean that my anger or my emotional response is correct. Both of us can be sinning in that instance. That just because you have this feeling doesn't mean it's right. Or it's equal to that response. I might, I might be angry at a certain thing, but I'm blowing things way out of proportion. And again, we, we think of all these things that they might be sinning and disobeying and I might be sinning in discipline. Pride, arrogance, defiance, it doesn't matter. Sin is at the root of all of it. However, when we look at God's anger, God doesn't have that sin that's within him. All of his righteous anger is righteous. He has no sin to be able to permeate his wrath. It's just and pure. So his emotional response, as we might label it, I think it's a it's normally a negative thing, because when we think of it, emotions, emotions are often what we would describe as passions that are uh, based on consequences. There's something that changes our emotions to be able to get a certain response. Whereas God is not like that. He doesn't have passions like we have passions. He, he's, he's always the same yesterday and today forever. You can't go to him one day in prayer and he, he responds and says, I'm angry at you today. And go to him another day and he says, well, I got more sleep, so therefore I'm not as angry. He's always the same yesterday and today and forever. He doesn't uh, change. 
So the same is with jealousy. We need to understand that when we look at this from a, in a, our perspective, what we think of jealousy is often sin riddled and fueled. But jealousy from God is, is fueled and funneled by his entire uh, essence of his attributes. That none of them cancel each other out. A part of his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his goodness, his truth, all of them uh, flow through his jealousy. But we also need to understand that we think of jealousy as something that you do not have. And so when we think about that, we also need to be cautious that we're not applying the same situation to God. There is nothing that is lacking in God. This is a doctrine which is a theological term called aseity. And aseity is, is the term, philosophical term or theological term, that basically means that uh, something is self-existent, self-sufficient, that it needs nothing else. Uh, derived from the Latin word aseitas, meaning from oneself or by oneself. And when we speak about it in the terms of God, God is self-existent and self-sufficient. That God, before the foundations of the world were laid, in the beginning was God. God didn't need to have anything else to be God. That he was God in self self-existent, self-sufficient. He's not dependent upon anything else. We as creatures are dependent upon a creator. But God is, we're not dependent, God is not dependent on us. He existed before we did. So when we think about aseity and jealousy, it's not that God is lacking something that we need to give him that he might be able to be full or he needs us he doesn't need anything to be able to desire him or fulfill him when we speak about giving god glory it's not that god is lacking in glory we're just attributing glory to god which is his already we're just describing who he is we're not adding to god so when we speak about god's jealousy it's not that he's lacking in any way So those two things of that emotional response and that aseity, God's self-existence, we need to understand when we speak about his jealousy. And this is what they did. They provoked him to jealousy by their sins. And when we think about their sins that they commit, we'll, we'll come up again, but the main one that comes up is their making of idols. I've tried to emphasize this throughout Jeroboam's reign, and it will come up time and time again. That here, they're they're making of carved images. And we often think about the second commandment, and the second commandment is about worshiping carved images. Whereas that's not the highlight. Why would you have the first commandment that says you shall not serve other gods? If God has already forbidden to be able to serve other gods, then why would he then forbid making images and worshiping those images? He's already forbidden the worshiping of the images in the first commandment. But specifically, when we talk about the jealousy of God, this is a thing that comes up in the second commandment. In its entirety, we often just think about the commandments in their short little phrases. 
But the entirety of the second commandment says this in Exodus chapter 20, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of thing that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of your fathers to the children, to the third and fourth generation for those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So here, the worshiping of idols, the making, the carving of images, and the worshiping of idols, then is striving, and this particular emphasis in the second commandment is that God is a jealous God. comes up again in Exodus chapter 34. Interestingly here, in verse 14, It says that you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And he explains, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the world, and they whore after other gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. So particularly, even in Exodus chapter 34, where God emphasizes the worshiping of other gods, but also the making of other idols, it's particularly about them entering into the land and following their gods that they have done. So here where God says in 1 Kings chapter uh, 14, that here he is a jealous God, he's stemming, he's bringing back all these connections to what he spoke through the, the law, of the second commandment violation, but then also in Exodus chapter 34 about the warning about going into this land and and serving these other gods. And 1 Kings actually adds this interesting comment that they did this more than their fathers did. So this is a pattern that we see time and time again. And what we see is that as time progresses, Israel and Judah don't necessarily get better. Now there's times where they, they get to a height, a pinnacle, but often what you see is that they don't, do not spend a lot of time at the top of the mountain. They spend more time going down or at the bottom of the valley. And in this case, they, they did it more than what they did before. It's getting worse and it's not getting better. Now we can start to be able to understand what the author of 1 Kings tries to highlight for us in chapter 23. Uh, Chapter 14, verses 23 and 24. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars of Ashtoreth on every high hill and under every green tree. And there was also male cult prostitutes in the land, and they did according to the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So here, this sin that drives them to jealousy is that second commandment violation of making idols and images, and then also bowing down and worshiping and serving them as well. They build high places. They build pillars. They do it so much that it's on every high hill, under every tree. The, the, the highlight, I think, is that it's just everywhere. They're just building them left, right, and center. They bring in these male prostitutes in the land. Against Deuteronomy chapter 23... None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and there none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. 
And here are these abominations that have crept in from these other nations that are around them. And here they are adopting them as their practices. Now Jeroboam tried to be able to replicate the uh, Mosaic law and tried to twist and distort it to be able to fit. But really he was taking on these false practices. Here Judah is just taking them outright, just being able to follow their ways. Now in Psalm 78, it speaks of this pattern of of the people of God constantly following and worshiping these false idols. In verses 56 to 59, it specifically highlights Israel, the northern kingdom. But I don't think it then rules out what Judah is doing here. In verses 56 and 59 of Psalm 78, it says, Yet they tested and rebelled against the the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted um, like a deceitful bow, and they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him with jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. Or in Psalm 106, again, a historical psalm of Psalm 105, 106, go together of of the pattern of of Israel, how they responded to God as he's delivered and saved them and and given them this promised land. But in verse 40 and 42, it says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage, and he gave them to the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them, and their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. So what we see here is is that they've turned and and worshipped other gods and gone their own ways, set up their own high places. They have the temple, the temple which was built 70 years before, uh, 40 years before. And now a generation has passed, and here they are setting up high places all over the place. From a great height in, in Israel as a whole, the United Kingdom's front, and now both the northern and the southern kingdom are going after false gods. And what we see here, as Psalm 106 explains, is exactly what happens in this passage in verses 25 and 28. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields and the gold that Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the doors of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. And God warned and told them if they go into this nation and they follow their other false gods then he is going to send other nations to come in and plunder them. It's very clear at the start of Judges. And Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods. And from among the gods of the people who were around them, they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served Baals and Ashtaroth. And so here, what we're seeing is this pattern coming in again. Judges goes from worse to worse, and now Israel picks up right where they left off, and they're worshiping these other gods, setting up high places, setting up male cult prostitutes, 
This is what it's like underneath Rehoboam's reign. These are exactly what God had pronounced in the curses. Remember in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, right before the, the new generation is about to cross into this promised land, which was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've spent all these years wandering in the wilderness, finally about to go on the cusp to be able to enter into this promised land. And they're set up on these two mountains, the tribes divided in half, and they're, they're to pronounce the blessings and the curses. What's going to happen if you follow God's word? What's going to happen if you disobey God's word and, and go after these false gods? And here, one of the curses there in Deuteronomy chapter 28 is, They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and, until your high and fortified walls, in which you trusted, come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given to you. And this is exactly what we see here. Here, Egypt, who was an ally, remember this is what Solomon sought to be able to do. He he sought to be able to make peace with all these other nations, making all these marriage alliances. Now Solomon is dead five years into Rehoboam's reign, and now the king of Egypt is coming to attack Um. Rehoboam. And he takes away all these shields from the house. We're, we're, all the treasures, and we're highlighted here that the shields are taken that Solomon made. Remember the shields that he made in 1 Kings chapter 10? 200 shields of beaten gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold, 3 minutes of gold went into each shield. And king put them in the house of the, of the forest of Lebanon. Roughly speaking, in today's language, it's always hard to be able to, you know, prices vary, variable. So, but roughly, it's about $58 million. It walks in and just walks out, plus more. They take everything. And here, we just have it as a fleeting comment. He took the shields that Solomon made. In the space of 40 years, the... the Nation goes from great wealth with peace and prosperity on every side, and now they're at war. Allies. That great cry of the temple, that great prayer of dedication. And now it's all just taken away and given to Egypt. Now, in 2 Chronicles, it's a great uh, book to be able to read hand-in-hand that the authors of both books want you to be able to read both of the accounts. We'll look at this in a couple of weeks. But in 2 Chronicles, gives us more account. What we actually find out about this is that we see God's mercy in all of this. 2 Chronicles chapter... um, I don't have it here on the uh, screen, but 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 5 says, Shema the prophet came to Rehoboam and the princes of Judah who gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, You abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. Continues in verses 6 and 8, and says, The prince of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. When the Lord saw that he humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them. But I will grant them some deliverance. And my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be servants to him. 
that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. So here, what they're doing is absolutely abhorrent. God's jealousy is stirred up, and he's going to send people to plunder them. But here, God's mercy comes to them because they humbled themselves. And he says that, I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. And throughout all of this time, in, in First Kings, particularly in the southern kingdom, what we see throughout all of these waves of these kings, the ups and the, bat, the, ups and the downs, the good and the evil, is God's flickering hope and promises to David that here, through David's line, there will be one who will sit on his throne forever. And so we see this flickering hope throughout all of this. Now what we need to be able to do is pair chronicles with kings to be able to see this whole story, these whole portraits of these kings. Often what you actually see is one paints a bad side and the other paints a good side. Or shows the light that that is coming through this dark cavern. But also what we need to be able to remember is the hope which is given to them and promised to them. Remember the dedication of the temple they went through and Solomon prayed all these prayers. If this happens, then do this and God will hear you and deliver you. Well, one of these in verses 37 to 40 explains that if there's a famine in the land or pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people of Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands towards this house, the house which God had set apart and placed his name there, the house in which Rehoboam was to rule over, highlighted at the opening of that passage. The city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And they were to turn to this house and to cry out, stretching out their hands. Then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, only you, know the hearts of the children of mankind, that they may fear all the days that they live in the land that you have you gave to their fathers. And so here is, is they've been told and instructed if they were to cry out, turn to this house in which God dwells, instead of going to these high places, these false gods, these false ways of worshiping, then God would hear them and deliver them. As Solomon said in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to what he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses his servant. Now we often think about that in the, the positive light. Here the positive light of God saving, delivering his people. He, he, he constantly been steadfast love and his faithfulness. But here this is exactly what God had also told would happen. If you go after these false gods, worship the way the Ammonites, the, the Moabites, the Hivites, the Hittites, the Prezites. If you go after all these ways, then what's going to happen? God would send people in to be able to besiege you, that you would be their servants. And it's true, not one of his words has failed. God had warned them, and this has happened. 
there's many ways for us to be able to conclude and to be able to go from here, but let, let me leave you with two. First, we need to understand that God is a jealous God. That here, Jesus says that no one can serve two masters. He's either going to love one and hate the other. And it's so true when we think about worshiping God. You worship God or you worship something else. And Calvin says that our hearts are, are constant perpetual idol factories, just popping out idols after idols after idols. God is jealous, not in the evil, wicked, sinful way as we think of jealousy, but a righteous, true way. Here in Deuteronomy, right at the very beginning, chapter 4, Moses tells the people, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, and form anything the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and the children's children have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in any form or anything, or by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that you will not utterly perish from the land you will soon utterly perish from the land that was going over the Jordan to possess, and you will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And here God warns them of what is going to happen, that he is a jealous God, an all-consuming fire. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews says as he, he speaks about this kingdom that cannot be shaken. But he says right at the very end that therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. Again, what does that connect to? Often this, this phrase of consuming fire jealousy connects to the violation of the second commandment. But here acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. I hear we're to devote ourselves that God is a jealous God and we are to worship Him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second thing that we can see in this passage, I think, and we'll see it time and time again, we'll see it clearly next week, that here we see a sinner is not a roadblock for God. Actually, if that was the case, then we would have no hope. There's no hope for us if, if we're constantly looking for someone to be able to save us, born of Adam, to be able to save us. We cannot do it. But time and time again, we're highlighted and pointed out here that um, God uses sinners to be able to carry along his promise. Rehoboam, the one who rules and, and leads the people astray, we, he turns up in the genealogy of Jesus, right next to other sinners. Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, after the father of Rehoboam, father of the, 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 Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. David's a sinner, Solomon's a sinner, Rehoboam's a sinner. We'll continue to see sinner after sinner after sinner. It shouldn't surprise us here that God is carrying on his promise. He 
It's not about the sinner, it's about the person who made the promise to the sinner. God, as we'll constantly see as we go through these kings. And we see the, the final close of Rehoboam, verse 29 to 31. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was a war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried in the city, in the, his father's in the city of David. His mother's name was Nehemiah, Nehemiah the Ammonite, and uh, Bijam, his son, reigned in his place. We see here also that promise is not yet fulfilled. We'll see time and time this repetition, this phrase that says, and he slept with his fathers. He died. He was buried. He sees corruption. This is actually Paul's, Peter's argument in Acts chapter 2 in a part of his sermon. He quotes from Psalm 16 where he says, where David writes, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter's point in saying in Acts chapter 2 is that this cannot, this Holy One cannot be speaking of David, for David was buried in the tomb of his fathers, and so too were his children. They saw corruption. But here Paul, uh, Peter points out in Acts chapter 2, he says, Brothers, may I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing God, had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And so we're going to see this constant refrain that he died and he was buried. He died and he was buried. And this points that there's one to come that is going to die or that's going to reign forever. And we understand he dies, he's buried, but he doesn't see corruption. As David prophesies, as Peter says, he's a prophet. That here we see Rehoboam die and be laid in the tomb. We know he is not the son who's going to sit on the throne forever. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.